Our Father, we are gathered together as fruits of your mercy and grace, your eternal mercy and your eternal grace and your eternal purposes in Christ. That we are redeemed, forgiven of our sin through the blood of the Lamb, through our mediator, as we just sang, who stood in our place, who stood condemned in our place so that we could have the no condemnation status. And it is that grace that is the foundation, the fuel, the motivation, the end to which we sing that motivates our singing. And it is to the glory of the one who's given us that grace that we not only sing, but that we live and that we strive after to lay hold of that for which we have been laid hold of in Christ Jesus, namely the glory of the resurrection and the fullness of our salvation to be with you forever and a new heavens, and a new earth. But help us to see that it's not merely a doctrine that we agree on, but it is reality and truth that is certain, and it is lays before us even nearer than we can imagine. And so as we now open your word together, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, and, O oh Christ, that you would grant us to hear your voice. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hey, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, and again, uh, we come to the message of the exalted Christ to the church at Laodicea, the message of the exalted Christ to the church at Laodicea, which has occupied uh, our consideration now for uh, several weeks, for many weeks, and will this week and then finally uh, next week. Uh, I was going to, uh, this week, make the last message, but however, as I was going through uh, the passage, as often is the case, and realized that there are just some things here that it's uh, good not to rush through and to take our time on. And namely, verse 19, this morning, Christ's call to the church at Laodicea to repent, to be zealous and to repent. Repentance is, of course, something that we don't hear a lot in the message in terms of the church popular, we could say, the, the general church that interacts with our culture at large and our society at large, the, the representatives for the church that most often make it to uh, religious channels or the history channel or CNN news or something along those lines. But repentance is something that is central to the message of the gospel. In fact, when we as a family made our decision to put the girls into Christian schools and to let them do some other activities, one of the things that we constantly reminded them of, and by the grace of God, I think they, they imbibed for themselves, was this warning that one of the dangers of those kind of environments is that there is always the assumption that those who are there are actually Christians. They're just assumed to be Christians. And that certainly has been the case in our experience. And that is the case in many churches. And there's a variety of reasons, some of which I'll mention a little bit later in the message. But the, situ the, the reality is, is that many people fill the churches and there is just the assumption that because I am there, because I'm opening my Bible, because I am in some way participating with the activities and what's going along or agreeing with what's being said, therefore I am saved, therefore I am a Christian. And unfortunately, the message of the gospel that goes out, as we've already noted, tends to foster that kind of comfort, uh, that kind of comfort in one's sin and unregenerate state, because it doesn't challenge with the reality of who God is, the reality of the fullness of what Christ accomplished in salvation, and how that needs to manifest itself in the life of those who have actually participated in the reality of his saving grace and his saving work. 
But Christ was not ashamed to talk about repentance. We've certainly seen it in the Old Testament through the prophets when he sent them to the nation of Israel, causing them to turn from their wicked ways back to the worship of the one true God who redeemed them, the creator of the ends of the earth, to turn away from their idols, to turn to serve the living and the true God. We see it in the ministry of Christ when he came, even the preparation for Christ in John the Baptist, that he preached repentance to the nation to turn from their sin, to turn back to serving God, to knowing him and to living for him. And again, we certainly saw it in the ministry of Jesus. The very first words of Jesus in his public ministry recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When tragedy struck the people and they were overwhelmed by uh, the injustice of King Herod and the injustice of his sin against uh, those who uh, belonged to God's people, uh, he gave them a message of repentance. You'll remember this. They talked about Pilate had come and mixed blood, whose blood Pilate, those who were worshiping Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So when there was human sin and the suffering of human sin, Jesus didn't get lost in some sentimental sorrow. He said, this is the reality that death exists and you need to repent or you will perish. When tragedy hit and the Tower of Siloam fell on some and killing them, and Jesus said to them, you also must take this as a lesson and repent. You must repent or you likewise will perish in other words, those who die by some tragedy, whether it be as the consequence of somebody sinning against them, or those die, who die by tragedy of simply living in a fallen world where tragedy happens and death takes place through natural disaster or whatever, the reality is that Jesus is pointing them to that unless you repent, and unless repentance is something evidence in your life, repentance towards God, you likewise will perish. He took that as an opportunity to wake them up, to stir them up. I dare say that that is a message that most Christians, and, per, and especially even those Christians who are given a public platform, would gladly declare because of the censure and the hostility that would be given against them. Some faithfully do do that when they have a public platform, but many do not. Many do not. But that is not the Christian gospel to ignore the call to repentance. And that is central to the message of Jesus, and here is the thing, to the church. It was central to the message of Jesus when he was here in the Gospels, interestingly and strikingly so, to the covenant people of God. That was the very essence of John the Baptist's ministry, is that you have a heritage in the covenant, you have an identity and a name as the people of God, you have the privileges of receiving the oracles of God, and so on and so forth, you have the temple worship, but you are outside of God's kingdom and you need to repent. And that would be centered on their acceptance of Christ as their Messiah. And even as we hear Jesus' message to the church, even to those whose very identity is through their faith, supposedly in Christ Jesus, and repeatedly his message to them is you need to repent, not to live some higher and better life, but you need to repent so you don't perish. And so you don't end up forever separated from Christ. That's his message, and so it's important that we Consider that and understand what he's calling us to. So let me begin by reading, we'll read from verse 17 down to verse 19. 
And verse 19 is what we'll focus on this morning. Being in verse 17. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. And that is the message of Christ, again, to his church, to the professing church, to those who are identified with his name, in this case, in the city of Laodicea. And this is a part of his call then to repentance. We're still under that point, his call to repentance. Now we noted in verse 17 that he exposed their hypocrisy, their self-delusion and their self-satisfaction. That though they felt very comfortable with where they were in a very affluent society, and we live in a very affluent nation, we can certainly connect with that. That they had become very satisfied. They had become very content with what they could enjoy in the things of this world. And they transferred that earthly contentment over to the assumption of spiritual contentment and well-being. And Jesus says, you've got it all backwards. It's not like that. In fact, you have a wrong view of yourself. You are, in fact, not rich and have need of nothing. You have need of everything and the most important thing, namely life. And he says, you are, in fact, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then in an incredible act of mercy, we've already looked at in verse 18, he says that even though that is your condition, even though you are utterly separated from me, you can come to me and have everything that I offer. I meet your truest and deepest need, which is salvation, which is life, which is reconciliation with God and fellowship with God. If you understand your need as it really is, which is primarily spiritual because of your corruption, because of your fallenness, because of your wretchedness, I meet you there. I meet you at your place of your greatest need and I give to you and offer to you a grace that is full, a grace that is real, a mercy that you can lay hold of. And he defines that as gold refined by fire, a true faith, a faith that perseveres in suffering and endures all that comes against it. That you might buy white garments, that you might be clothed in his righteousness, evidenced by the righteous deeds that it produces. And that you may hide the shame of your nakedness, and that you may take eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. In other words, to have true spiritual sight, true spiritual deception, and true discernment. He says, I offer you those things, but again... Those are only things that are precious and those are only a treasure to see that they don't see, to those who see they don't see and who don't have his righteousness and so forth. But when you do, when there is that deep conviction, he is the answer. He supplies what we need most of all. But then he says in verse 19, as he continues, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus' rebuke has been strong and direct. As we've noticed, he says nothing positive about this group of people. The only, the only good or high point in all of his message is this gracious call to repentance. And so he's been very hard with them. He's told them, look, you're lukewarm and your spiritual condition and the vanity of your works is so disgusting to me. It's so reprehensible to me that I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want anything to do with you. That's a hard message. Imagine if 
Imagine if that was directed with our name or any, the name of any other church. He's saying, yes, it's a hard message, but it's one that you need to hear. And the rebuke is strong because the stakes are high. Because he's saying, if you don't get this, if you don't turn around, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, then the result is not that you just will live a low-level Christian life. It's that you'll be forever rejected by me. In other words, you will go to hell, not heaven. And so he has to be strong and he has to be stark because the stakes are so high and because he cares for them. What does it profit a man, Jesus said earlier during his earthly ministry, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What good is your wealth? What good is your prosperity? What good is your earthly flourishing going to do if you're forever rejected? And he doesn't want that to happen to them. And so the strength of his rebuke marks then the depth of his mercy and the depth of his love. He wants to prevent their perishing and our perishing and the perishing of all who name his name particularly. And this is the heart of Jesus. And it should frame then the way and the perspective that we have of his warnings and of his trials that he brings into our life. They are expressions of his kindness to humble us so that we might receive life indeed. Now I want to make just a few observations here up front. First of all about this. And I touched on this uh, when we ended last week, but let's consider it again. And it's this. First of all, love addresses sin. Love addresses sin. Love does not hide sin. Love does not cover over sin. Love does not excuse sin. Love addresses sin. Tolerance, not to be confused with patience, is not love. Tolerance of sin is not love. You'll remember, it was briefly mentioned, I think, in the prayer, or it will be even a little later, is that when the, the church at Corinth tolerated sin in their midst, it brought the strongest rebuke from the Apostle Paul. He rebukes them. That wasn't some sign of super special love. That wasn't the sign of some super special insight into grace. He said it was actually pride because it was putting your ideas above God's holiness and God's glory in his church. And Paul says, I delivered such a one over to Satan. Love then addresses sin. He cared about the glory of the church and, and the people in it. In Proverbs, probably the likely background of Jesus' words here in chapter 3, says this, My son, the, the, uh, Solomon does, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Verse 12, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. His love for his son, his love, his delight in his son is demonstrated not in tolerance of sin, but in rebuking sin for their good. That passage is again applied in Hebrews 12 you're familiar with. And these are under believe, directed to believers who are undergoing quite a cost for their testimony of faith. He says in verse 8, If you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If there could be sin indulged in a believer's life and there's no discipline and no inward conflict from the Holy Spirit and no external humbling and trials from God to bring repentance, then he says that's not a measure of God's acceptance of you. It's a measure of God's rejection of you. God disciplines those whom he loves. He said just prior to that, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
And he does that, so he says in verse 10, so that we might share in his holiness. And what is the significance of sharing in his holiness? Well, one, when, it, when it's responded to rightly, he says in verse 11, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But even more, he says, it yields the assurance that we actually belong to him. Because he says, without the sanctification, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. There's no one who will see the Lord who does not experience to some level the degree or at some level the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so he says this is of utmost importance. It is of utmost importance that we address sin. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things, endures all things. But love, in 1 Corinthians 13, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but in the truth. Because truth is what preserves us. Truth is what God binds us to for our blessing and for our hope and for our security. Deception leads to ruin. And so love addresses sin. Love does not tolerate sin for the purpose of keeping peace. Love does not tolerate sin for the, for the purpose of not offending someone. And it means then at times when there is true love, even as we see in the life of God towards his people and of Christ particularly, and as we see here, it is an expression of love to strongly rebuke sin. Let me just read a, just a couple other passages and we'll move on. But I want to seal this home. There's obviously a lot we could say. This isn't the main point of where I'm going, but let's, let's, let's consider this. In Proverbs 27, he says this in chapter five, or 27, verse 5. Better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 13, 24. He who holds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And we could go on. The point here is that the expression of Christ's love for his people isn't some unending sense of non-convicting kind of joy and happiness and exuberance. The love of Christ for his people includes the trials. It includes the suffering. It includes the conviction. It includes the, his confronting sin among his people. If there is a, as a person or if there is a church who has disobedience and they don't experience that, that is a sign of Christ's rejection of them. So here, it is a great and infinite mercy of God that he would give them such strong language to wake them up from their spiritual stupor and their spiritual slumber. It's his love. One said this, love is never cruel, but it can be severe. It can be severe. We would call that tough love. It does need to be tough at times. Not always, but at times. So love is the motivation for reproof because discipline humbles and the gospel humility leads to the infinite riches of Christ. Now there is a, a question here that I, I do just want to acknowledge and briefly note in case it might be going through your mind. He says here, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So who is he referring to here? Is he referring to disobedient but regenerate believers? Or is he referring to professing believers who are unregenerate? And the question comes because of the supposed tension between these two statements. I will spit you out of my mouth, which indicates that they are not regenerate, whom he's referring to. And he makes no recognition, as he did with Sardis, of believers even being among them, though there surely were some. 
And then later he's going to say there needs to be the door of the church that we'll get to next week opened up to Christ. In other words, to say before that happens, you're outside of Christ. So clearly he is addressing professing believers who are outside of Christ. But here he says, I love you. That's why I'm addressing you. So who is he referring to? Well, there is in all likelihood, of course, some believers mixed in there at Laodicea, although Christ does not address them. However, the nature of the rebuke and their need for spiritual light and the need to be covered in Christ's righteousness and so far is his invitation to them of true faith. He says, but I love you, even though you're outside. I love you. I have a love for you, even though you aren't in fellowship with me. I have a love for you, though you are reprehensible in your lukewarmness and I'm in danger of rejecting you. What does he mean that he loves? How are we to understand this love? Well, just in generally, the love of God is, a, is comprehensive. It's multi-layered. God loves the world. He doesn't save the world. He judges the world unrepentantly. And yet he loves the world and sent his son. He loves the world and the, the world that inhabit, inhabited by his image bearers. And he sent his son, though he will judge he has love for individuals even, even those who are outside him. We saw that with Mark chapter 10. He loved the rich young ruler. He looked at him and loved him. Agape is the word in both of those cases, John 3.16. He had a love for him. He had a genuine care for him. He had a genuine desire to see his good. He has a particular love for his save, and a saving love for his elect, the love that he set on his people before the foundation of the world, a love that guaranteed the certainty that they would be brought to life and faith and union with his son and experience all the blessings and the privileges of his work in Christ. There's a particular love that he shows to his elect that he doesn't show to others. And here there is an affectionate love that he has to those who profess his name. He uses a word here. Some of you are familiar. There's a variety of words, but some of the common words that we're used to hearing is that word between agape and then phileo. He uses phileo here. And it is a word that why sometimes agape and phileo are synonymous. They're used interchangeably. They aren't, they aren't essentially synonymous, and they do have kind of nuances in the way that they are used. And often phileo has the idea in the sense added to it of affection, of affection, even more so than the word agape. And that's the way he's using it here. It has the sense of affection, tender affection for those who claim to know him, for those who are claiming to be the church, even though they are outside of experiencing his saving grace. And yet he has an affection, and it is this affection that inspires his rebuke to call them to consider their situation. And so what does this affection do? What does this affection do? He says it reproves and disciplines. I reprove and I discipline. What does he mean? Well, love reproves. Love exposes sin is the idea here. It has the, the sense of pointing out and exposing wrongdoing. That's the idea here. It, it, it brings to light that which is unholy and that which is wrong. As a matter of fact, it's the kind of love that we as a church are to show to one another and to care for each other's souls. As a matter of fact, let me just give this verse in Matthew 18 in church discipline. Uh, he says this in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. That's the idea of the term. If he listens to you, or that's our term, you have won your brother. Show him his fault. Expose it. 
Bring it to light. Let him know about it. So that he can turn from it. So that he can be restored to fellowship with God's people and with Christ himself. Jesus then exposes the sin that he loves. And he wants that to be done in his church so that no one would be left to blindness. And so what does his affection do? What does the fact that he cares for his people do? It exposes sin. It brings it to the light. It makes it known and seen so that it can be repented of and turned from. So they will not be spit out of his mouth. What does this love do? He says it disciplines. It disciplines. What does he mean by that? And how can he discipline those who are outside of his saving grace? Here it has to do with the intention of his rebuke. The intention of his rebuke. The word that he uses here has the idea of instruction. In some places it's translated as education or, or learning. It has that idea. It sometimes is translated as punishment and so forth or correction. The idea of it in all of those cases is this. It's the idea of punishment or discipline for the ultimate purpose of training. And that's sometimes how it's translated as training. For training, for teaching, for instructing in the way that is right. In the way that is right. So that we could, in this context, avoid the deceitfulness of sin. And so what does his affection do? His affection says, I'm going to reprove you in very strong language so that you can see your sin, so that you consider, consider your true condition. And I'm going to bring discipline upon you, but I'm going to do it so that you might be pointed back to the way of mercy and the way of the gospel and the way of truth and the way of righteousness so that you could receive and know the fullness of my goodness to you. But you have to get there through the way of pain. You're not going to dance into there. You first have to accept what it is that you have done and where you are. So here's the mercy of Jesus to his wayward church and to all wayward and self-deceived professing Christians. He needs to expose sin. How does he do this? Well, how is he doing it to us right now? And how did he do it to this church? He sent a message. He sent a message. He spoke to them. He revealed his word to them. He gave them a message from heaven and it was carried to them. And then it was written down in the letters. And it was written down in the letters that would be circulated to all of the churches. And then be preserved by the Holy Spirit and kept by the churches for the churches through all the ages. How does he do this? How does he expose and how does he discipline? Through scripture. Essentially through scripture. That is the whole goal and role of Preaching accurately the word of God. Listen to this, 2 Timothy. He says, well, in verse 3, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, there's our word, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. He says, that's coming, so don't do that. 
Don't do that. Be faithful with the message that I have given to the church, the church which is supposed to be the pillar and the support of truth, and be faithful with that message. And if you are faithful with that message, it's going to have a rebuke sometimes. It's going to have comfort and teaching sometimes. Sometimes it's going to reprove. Sometimes it's going to train. Sometimes it's going to do, always, well, it's always going to build up. And so I would only make this brief comment that inasmuch as God's word is not fully in the full counsel of God, made known with clarity to the best of our ability, to that degree we silence Christ in his church. We silence his voice. We silence his voice even in our interaction with one another when we don't say the things that need to be said. When we hide over the true message. But Christ doesn't do that because he has an affection for them. He has an affection for his church. He cares for them, and so he rebukes them strongly, but in a way that they may be led to the path of righteousness. And then he says this. What is to be the response? He says, therefore be zealous and repent. Therefore be zealous and repent. If we've received his rebuke and we've received his discipline, this is the fruit. Be zealous and repent. That is the spirit-produced response. Not apathy, not merely interest, not I'll consider that again, but an immediate response of turning to Christ, responding to the message. It's the only right response to discipline, to trials, and to the Lord's instruction. Repentance. That's the only right response. Now he's identifying two parts here. He says, therefore, be zealous to command, to those who care, it's a present active imperative. In other words, you're, you're, you're to continually do this and manifest this in your life. Repent, he uses another form of grammar that is a one time, it's a turning, it's, a, it's an event, it's a moment, it's a wholehearted response to Christ. You're to have an ongoing zeal, a passionate response. It is to be initiated and brought into your experience through an act of repentance, of seeing who you are and turning to God. Zeal speaks of their passion. It's the exact opposite of their spiritual lethargy. There is even a general connection between the terms there, between being hot and this idea of zeal. But anyway, it has to do with this passionate response, this eager, intentional response that is the exact opposite of what, in this case, they were displaying and that we sometimes display. It's what Jesus had when he cleared the temple and zeal for his father's house consumed him. And he's saying this is the kind of zeal that you need to have. And it's the kind of zeal that's to be in tandem with a life that is repentant. Repentant. Now, it is possible here then to see this in a couple of ways. To say the zeal... The zealous passion for God reproduces the repentance or to say the repentance is then marked by the fruit of a zealous passion for God. And it doesn't really matter which way you take that because in either case the point is this. Christ is commanding them to turn from their proud self-satisfied works to a true relationship with him. That's what he's calling us to. He's not impressed with a mediocre life that lives in comfort. That's what he's saying that has no spiritual turmoil, that kind of lives free from any sort of spiritual internal battle, that kind of lives free from spiritual disappointments as though it's supposed to be this continual high, spiritual high that we live in. 
He's saying that's not the case. You are to be marked by repentance and a zeal and a passion for Christ and for him to be glorified in your life. And again, this is what's missing from much of the professing church. It may be missing from some of your very own lives. But it's necessary fruit of regeneration and of life. You say that you have faith. Well, Christ would say, but do you have repentance? You say that you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ would say, but are you repenting of your sin and turning away from it? You say that you love to sing songs and you feel very close to God when you're outside and a certain tune is played. He'd say, but are you pursuing obedience in your life? That is the issue. Repentance and faith are necessarily two sides of the same coin. They are together. They are unbreakable. They are in a bond that is bound forever in the purposes of God and the response that he requires from his people. And so it's necessary to just consider this for a moment. I want to consider this because this is missing from the church. And just broadly to look at, then what is he calling us to when he says repentance? What is he calling us to when he says repentance? And it's necessary to get this right because to be, to be wrong on this point can be to miss God's grace. It can be to miss it altogether. It can, it can be, again, Matthew 7, to have a whole lot of activity, a whole lot of right words, and be spiritually dead. That is a reality. And he says, I don't want that to happen. He doesn't want that to happen to you, if that's you. He doesn't want that to happen to any church. He actually doesn't want that to happen at Joe Osteen's church or any other church. He wants them to be saved and to be turned to him. So what is it that he is calling for? What is it that he is demanding from us? Well, let's consider first what it's not. What it's not. Some churches claim that repentance is unnecessary to focus on. It's simply too negative. It's too much of a burden. You can't say it too much, but unfortunately he represents a large part of Christianity and popular culture. But our but that name, Joe Osteen, seems to come up a lot in, in negative uh, evaluations. But he, we take him at his own words, and he says this. He says that he wants his ministry not to focus on sin and repentance all because that's so negative, and people are already burdened, and they already know that they're sinners. They don't need to hear that all the time. Well, Jesus apparently didn't agree with that. He says, in fact, if you don't hear that all the time and come to, come to face with it, then you'll never receive my mercy as it truly is, and you'll never be driven to repentance. So sin needs to be addressed as Scripture addresses it. And repentance needs to be the response. Sometimes churches say that repentance has nothing to do with salvation, that it is something that comes after salvation. In other words, this is if you... In popular language, we talk about lordship, non-lordship, or easy believism, and so on and so forth. This is the position that says, look, all you have to do is believe and become convinced in your mind of the truth of the gospel, and you are saved, and repentance is something that you do as a believer than to just have fellowship with God and to know his blessing. But it has nothing to do at all with your salvation. Even some defenders of that, say that you can actually walk away from Christ and you're still saved because you gave assent at that one moment of time to Christ. 
Actually, one put it in this way. And this is a quote that can be up there. Simply put, we may say this. The call to faith represents the call to eternal salvation. The calls to repentance, or the call to repentance is the call to enter into harmonious relations with God. In other words, you're saved by merely giving assent. Nothing can take that away, this author goes on to defend. But repentance is something you should do. But if you don't repent, that has nothing to do and no bearing on your salvation. Matter of fact, he goes on to say this, and it will be up there. The biblical picture of the saving experience is masterful in its clarity and simplicity. A single one-time appropriation of God's gift results in a miraculous inward transformation that can never be reversed. You can hold on to that because that's the confused hypocrisy of this position. But since this is true, we miss the point to insist that true saving faith must necessarily continue. Of course, our faith in Christ should continue, but the claim that it absolutely must or necessarily does has no support at all in the Bible. It is sufficient to observe that the Bible predicates salvation on an act of faith, not on the continuity of faith. Just as surely as regeneration occurs at a point in time for each individual, so surely does saving faith. This author who teaches at a major seminary in the United States actually goes on to say in this work and other works that if you turn away and you walk away from Christ and even if you were to believe something else, if you were sincere at the moment that you initially professed faith in Christ, you're saved, you're going to go to heaven. That is what's being taught at a seminary, which means then that there's a classroom full of men who are going into churches to teach the same thing. That's exactly the opposite of what Christ is warning about here. It's exactly the kind of message that leads people with a smile on their face all the way to their deathbed outside of Christ. Hanging on that one moment that they had. Hanging on that one decision that they made hanging on that one act of baptism that they felt really emotional about at the time, and they were always dead. That's taught in some churches. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there needs to be repentance, or I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And what is repentance then? Most simply, repentance then is, in tandem with faith, is a turning from sin to God. It's a turning from sin to God's grace in Christ. Repentance has to do with our turning to embrace the object of faith, which is Christ himself. One said this in a helpful way. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience with Christ. This involves the initial act of repentance. There is repentance unto life. There is that initial work of the Holy Spirit where he takes a dead sinner and he so convinces them of who God is and their own sin before him, of their guilt and the shame of their sin, and he convinces them and shows them Christ and God's mercy in Christ so that feeling the shame and the guilt and the burden of who they are, they turn to Christ and they become not unbelieving but believing. And they embrace him. And there's an evidence of it in their life. And so he said to the church at Thessalonica that you turn from dead idols to serve the living and the true God. That is repentance. And that happens initially when someone is brought to faith in Christ. It is also obedience, really, to the two greatest commandments. One said this, 
Since the two greatest commandments of God's law mandate love for God and love for our neighbors, the central thrust of repentance is turning from the defiling dominance of our self-love to love the Lord with all of our hearts, to love our neighbor as ourself. As we noted, it is necessary to salvation. It is absolutely necessary to salvation. There is no salvation. There is no true faith. There is no evidence of a genuine turning without repentance. Without repentance. And at the heart of repentance then is not only to see and to feel and to know our own depravity that we were born with, our own inner rebellion and natural aversion to the things of God that needs to be changed. It's not to come to grips with that alone, but it is also in that to see that God is truly merciful, that God is truly gracious, that God truly does forgive. Remember, though he said this as a believer, but it makes the point, the same point, is David, when he had his great sin, how does he begin his prayer? Let me just read it. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Hebrews eleven six says that we must, true faith believes God as he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It is believing that God is merciful. It is believing that God is a forgiving God. It is believing that God is gracious. It is believing that God receives the defiled and the, and the, and the guilty and the condemned and he offers to them the reality of saving grace. It is the attitude that was of the prodigal son who though he had disobeyed, though he had offended his father, though he treated him disrespectfully, though he took his inheritance and he squandered it on a debauched life and found himself in the pits of nothingness and pigs in the most defiled situation for a Jew. And it says he came to himself and he realized how good it was in his father's house and how good those in his father's house had it. And he knew that if he went back with a humbled heart that maybe the father would receive him back. And indeed, that's what we see there in that parable. The father came running out to receive him because his heart was full of mercy, ready to forgive. And so repentance owns our sin fully as it is in all of its depth and all of its corruption and all of its heinousness. But it knows that when brought before God in a true act of contrition and desire to be reconciled is always met with a forgiving God, a merciful God, a God who receives sinners. It is then, however, something that a response that involves the whole person, the whole person It involves the mind. Sometimes those who hold to the other position say it's only in the mind. In my mind I have to become convinced. The mind I have to believe. And if that's true, affections and will aren't a part of it. It's just the mind. And the mind is certainly a part of true repentance. The mind has to change in its understanding of Christ. And so Jesus said, who do the crowd say I am? And some say a prophet, some say a good teacher, some say other things. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Those who didn't get that walked away. They weren't disciples anymore. In other words, there needs to be the mind that grasps the reality of who God is, the reality of what God has done in Christ, and gets it, and believes it, and has spiritual perception. A natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually appraised. But those in whom the Spirit of God has awakened and made alive, the mind grasps these spiritual truths. It hears the word of Christ. It sees the kingdom of God. And it's able to draw towards it and near it. It is able to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
in 2 Timothy 2.25. One says that it includes then the sense of the hatefulness of sin, the sense of the beauty of holiness, and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. The mind and the thinking about Christ must change. He's no longer a good creature or this vague figure that I hear about in church or some moral teacher out and that, I, that Christians talk about. He is in fact the Son of God, the Savior, the promised Messiah, and the only one who can reconcile me to God. And the mind grasps that and holds it and sees it and believes it. And it's affecting then the heart and the emotions and the affections. So that Romans 6, 21, he says, you've now turned away from those things of which you are now ashamed. Sin isn't something that you glory in. You're not proud of those old days when you reveled in your sin. They are a point of shame to you. And the Christian says, if I could do anything, I would go back and change those and live as a believer in Christ. I would live for his glory. I would live with wisdom. I would live in obedience. I would live to evangelize and to tell others about him rather in my selfish, self-indulgent pursuits. And so the affections are changed. The mind sees Christ as he is, understands the testimony of him as his word. It affects the heart and the emotions so that we see sin not as something desirable, but as something shameful. And that's why those who say, I want to come to Christ, but experience the world first, do not have the spirit of God working in them. That's a stupid statement. Sin is something we're ashamed of, not that we want to taste and see it before we give it up. Not at all. And it then moves upon the will and the volition, and so that it's exercised and proven in actual acts of obedience to embrace Christ and to turn and to follow him. If you remember with John the Baptist, they came professing repentance, and he said, bring forth the fruits of repentance. Don't tell me about your repentance. Don't tell me about your commitment. Don't tell me about how sorry you are. Let me see it, he says. Let me see it in your life. Let me see the repentance that you claim, if it's true. And it's not merely then a one-time act. It is continual throughout life. The very Reformation, when Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the door at Wittenberg, it began with this statement. The very first statement, the very first of his theses is this. When the Lord our Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, 17, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not merely the initial point, it is the entire life of repentance. Why? Because in the, when we come into life, there's an ongoing battle with sin. It introduces a battle, it doesn't get rid of it. Your life becomes more miserable internally, not less miserable in many ways. Because now you have the opposition of the devil. Now you have this conflict within you between who you are and what you want and the sin that remains in you. You have the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You have the disciplining activity of God against sin in your life to bring you to repentance. Your life doesn't get easier. In many ways, it gets harder. And you're going to know miseries that you never knew before as you battle with sin and fail. But there are also no joys and hope and purpose that you never knew before as well in Christ and so it is continual throughout life. It is the whole person. And let me briefly just acknowledge this. It's important then that we understand what is true and false repentance. Because even as we say all of these things, there is also a kind of false repentance that many times is masked as true repentance. And this is, I think, one of the greatest difficulties that we struggle with, even as Christians... And certainly unbelievers are deceived with. 
And that is discerning what is a true work of the Spirit and what is the true kind of grief that is produced by the Spirit and what is just my own grief that an unregenerate person can have. Well, I want to end here then with this passage. It's actually in 2 Corinthians 7. We'll just look at it for a couple of minutes as we come to the Lord's table. 2 Corinthians 7. Now, the big picture of 2 Corinthians 7 is this. Paul wrote them a letter. He he went there. He ministered. He established the church, wrote them a letter because of the issues that were going on in response to what they had said to him. In the meantime, some false teachers had come in, and they started opposing the ministry of Paul. And some of them joined, but most of the church also just stayed silent and let that happen. And Paul ended up getting run out of town. And Paul had a great love for this church, and he knew that he was afraid as, as Eve's mind was led astray by the deception of Satan. He says, I'm afraid your mind will be led astray and you'll believe what is false. And he says that in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, but he's saying he had a concern for this church. And so in between 1 Corinthians, he wrote another letter, which he refers to as a severe letter, and it's often referred to. He had to rebuke them. He addressed their sins strongly. He told them that of their error and their wrongness. As a matter of fact, don't turn there, but in chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love that I have, especially for you. I had to be strong because the stakes were high. And so when you come into chapter 7, he's, he's talking about this letter that he wrote and what it produced in them. And he, and he was rejoicing that it produced what was true. And in saying what was true, he was also identifying what would have been a wrong response and sometimes is. And so he says this in verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. This is utterly important. Notice again, however, that he is addressing their sin. It was not easy for him. He did the hard thing because of his concern for the gospel and love for the church which go together. Addressing sin is not easy. It's one of the most uncomfortable things that we do as a church and in our interpersonal relationships. But it is an expression of true love when the, when the occasion calls for it. And so we see with Paul. He, had, he went knowing it would be hard, not knowing how they would respond, not knowing how they would accuse him and, or uh, evaluate his motivation. But he went because it was right. And so he, he went and he wrote that letter and it produced, thankfully, what was good. Because he rebuked them. Imagine, just as a side, if he didn't, how they would have continued on in sin, the effect that would have had, the inroad of the false teachers on them, how it would have diminished the gospel, and how it would have deceived many if he would not have humbled himself to address the sin. But he did. He did. And then he said, it's utterly crucial then to, to discern the, the kind of sorrow that it produced in you so that we could know also what is good and what is not good as we evaluate our response. And so we notice here then, as I read, I don't rejoice that you were made sorrowful. That's never fun. 
but you are made sorrowful to repentance, because that is according to the will of God. But there's another kind of sorrow. Here is the sorrow, he says in verse 10, that produces death. And it's a sorrow of the world. It's according to the world. And there is a kind of sorrow that doesn't produce life, which is not a work of the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's the sorrow that lacks faith in Christ. It's the sorrow that's sourced not in failure to live up to the glory of God, but a fear of consequences, a sorrow of personal failure. It's a sorrow that wants freedom and release from consequences, but doesn't want Christ in the way of holiness, for holiness' sake and for Christ's sake. How do you know if you have this kind of sorrow? What does it produce? Death. How do you know? What's the red flag when you deal with sin in your life and you're feeling bad about it? How do you know what kind of sorrow you have? What does it produce in your life? If it produces shame, discouragement, regret, anxiety, depression, sort of a downcast attitude all the time, and that false pride of woe is me, I'm so terrible, and it doesn't look to Christ, then it's a false sorrow. It's a false grief. It's not impressing God with how much penance and shame you put on yourself. It is a self-centered sorrow. It is not broken over having offended Christ and having disobeyed God. It's, it's offended over what it's going to cost self and how we've disappointed self and what it says about self. It's the kind of sorrow that Judas had. I know I wish we had more time, but I'm going to mention this. It's the Judas had. What did Judas realize what he had done? He knew that he had betrayed innocent blood. And what did he do? He was convicted. He was grieved. Actually, some of the same terms are used there. He was grieved. And he went to the temple and he took the 30 pieces of silver. And he threw it into the midst of the floor, uh, the temple there. And he said, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. I don't want the wages of this sin. And he threw it back. He had grief. He had full acknowledgement. He took complete ownership. And he tried to change his actions. And then what did he do? He went out and he killed himself. That was a sorrow according to the world. It was a real sorrow. It was a real sorrow related to a sin. But you know what it didn't have? It didn't have Christ. It didn't have Christ. There was no merciful God. There was no offense for a loving Savior. There was only this incredible burden that he had of his own failure and what that meant. And that very often in the life of the church and in our own lives masks itself and deceives us into thinking that we're truly repentant when we're not. And then we wonder sometimes, why do we keep struggling with the same sin? Well... Sometimes a part of that is because we're not really sorry for the sin, we're sorry for the consequences. And we're not really battling the sin, we're trying to feel better or to have more blessing or whatever it might be. But we need to be honest with ourselves and our hearts. And we know by what it produces. If it is sorrow according to God, what does it do? It says to God, against you and you only I have sinned. But it begins that statement by saying, you are a God of loving kindness and compassion and mercy. A God of the covenant. In our case, the God that's revealed in Christ who has atoned for my sin. And then what does it produce? Verse 11, earnestness, godly sorrow produces earnestness. Vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of the wrong. That's what it produces. It produces a sense of the reality of God's forgiveness and a desire to live for His honor and for His glory. It wholeheartedly embraces God's way. It is without regret. 
It is without regret. It wants cleansing not merely from the consequences of sin, but it cries out like David did, and it says, Create in me a clean heart. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Take the pollution and the corruption of sin, which I hate, and it's in my heart, and cleanse me and renew in me a right spirit. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Turn me back to your covenant grace, because I want to walk with you in obedience. We won't go through all of those terms for time's sake, but let me just say this. That it means it's a life that's turned completely back to God and wants to walk with Him. That says, Lord, I don't turn to you with a half obedience. I'm turning to you to say whatever it takes. I want to walk with you. I want to be restored in fellowship with you. I want you. And let me say this. When we come to the Lord's table, when we come to the Lord's table, This is what we come with. The heart that has listened to the Lord's message, owns the message about ourselves and what it means to know Him. It comes with a repentant heart. It's a trust in His mercy, a renewed desire to turn from sin and attitude, thought, and deed. To walk in the light of His Word and fellowship with Him and with the Father. And here's the glory of it all. That for believers, no matter what you have in your life, when that's the heart... We come to the table with this, a reminder of the full acceptance of God by His grace in Christ. A reminder of His continued promise to help and uphold His people by faith and continue to work in them. A promise to pick them up when they fall. A promise to heal them when they sin. To give them forgiveness when they have disobeyed. A promise to renew them by His word and to always hear them when they bow their head in prayer. And that's what the table reminds us of. And it reminds us to get our eyes off of that so much and to turn them back to the future, the promise that we have in Him when we will be fully restored in the fullness of grace. Let me pray as the men come forward and we'll take the elements. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your promises of grace in Christ. Thank You for the reality of Your grace in Christ. May we come to know it more deeply and more fully. Even now as we take these elements, would You impress upon us the significance of these signs Would you impress upon us the the glory and the heart of this ordinance that you have commanded us to remember and remind us of your sacrificial love for us. Remind us that it is a holy love as well. Remind us again of the glory of Christ that we would be renewed in our desire for obedience and remind us of the hope of heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen.